happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 141 for July the 17th, 2019. My name is Wes Fryer. I am coming to you tonight from Providence, Rhode Island, from the Summer uh, Institute on Digital Literacy, where I have been learning and tweeting probably a ridiculous amount this week. And I am not normally here in the Northeast. I am in Oklahoma City, where as of July 1st, officially, I am the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School, which means I get to teach fifth and sixth grade computers next year, coach our teachers as a pedagogical coach and do other various and sundry things that do not include fixing your printer or being responsible for cyber attacks on our network. And I'm joined tonight by the amazing Dr. Neifer, who likes to have regular tours of the state of Montana because it is so quick to get all the way around his massive state. And how are you tonight, Dr. Neifer, after a two-week hiatus from the show? I am well, Dr. Fryer, and it's true. I do like to hit the road in big sky country. I'm actually, uh, usually I'm in Missoula, Montana, where I'm the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, Montana State Virtual School. But I traveled across the mountain pass to lovely Helena, Montana, which is where I went to college and where I taught uh, during my teaching career, where I'm attending the Mountain Moodle Moot for the next three days uh, at lovely Carroll College in um, uh, Helena, Montana. I get my alma mater. I went to college there. And I have to say, one of the best small uh, uh, conference experiences in the nation. And I really love to be here each summer as they put on a nice show to uh, join the Moodle faithful from across the Rocky Mountain and Pacific Northwest. That is that is great. Uh, I wonder if Kent Brooks will be there. He uh, I, he usually is, actually, and um, he also usually runs some things regarding Twitter there, too, so I am fairly certain that I will see him this week. Have you ever heard him sing his John Denver remixes for Moodle? <laughs> no. <laughs> so he and, um, I'm trying to think, Scott uh, is his name. Um, his, it was his partner in crime at the uh, Western Oklahoma State College when he was the tech director down there in, in uh, Altus. Yeah, if he if he's there, see if he's got the guitar and and he can fire it up because there's not many folks that can sing a John Denver tune and praise open source and Moodle and yep, yes. that is awesome. The, there's a funky atmosphere here at, at the Mountain Moot, and I, I'm sure he's had to have done that at some point in, in this is the seventh or eighth year that this conference has been put on. But if if uh, I will, I will ask around. If that hasn't happened, this is the year, yo. Well, I uh, I'll give him a shout out too. I just read his book. Yeah, so like I've been two weeks, you know, in the mountains, almost entirely offline. I read four books. Like that wow. hasn't happened for decades probably for me. But one of them was a book that he wrote about Boston, Colorado, which was a boom town in southeastern Colorado. And one of the things I got to do is write my little review for that. So I'll include in the show notes a link to Wild As They Come by Kent Brooks, which has nothing to do with technology, but yeah, it was one of my books to read. Well, Jason, what is this? What are we here to do? And we have not been able to do for, for two weeks. And we've got Scott Summer in the chat room. And I think maybe Peggy may be joining us too. What, what's up here? 
Well, the EdTech Situation Room is a podcast about technology news, but we just don't talk about the technology news. We try to plug it into the grander architecture of K-12 education. And both Wes and I work in different facets of the K-12 world, and we both have some unique and perhaps strong views about technology and how it works in and around the classrooms. And we like to kind of take a look at what's going down um, in, in the headlines and apply it to your context in working in K-12 education. Uh, we have a list of links we show or talk about each week. Um, our link list is at our website, edtechsr.com. Oftentimes, there's well uh, ahead uh, number-wise what we can cover in an hour-long podcast. And so even if you just want to take a look at what's going on in tech news that week that we think has some uh, applicability to education, that's a great place to go. So, Wes, um, a lot of interesting things happened in the last three weeks, although at the same time, because of the 4th of July holiday, there was a, a lull in tech news. Any place you'd like to start us tonight? Yeah, let's go to uh, an article about Boston Dynamics. Uh, this one actually was today uh, by The Verge, and the title is Boston Dynamics Robots Are Preparing to Leave the Lab. Is the World Ready? Uh, and, you know, these are probably the most engaging and, you know, conversation catalyzing <laughs> videos that anybody else has that anybody's put out about robots. And the one that they're going to be trying to put out is Spot, uh, which is like a dog. Um, but it's really an interesting article. It talks a little bit about the history. I guess the company was founded back in 1992, uh, originally really working a lot for the military. Then Google's Alphabet ended up buying it. And then there's an investment group it talks about, I think, from Japan that has really been focused on the monetization. But, you know, the robots are, are all over. There's tons of robots, especially in uh, manufacturing, but, but also in distribution. Um, but there's not these mobile robots. And so um, they talk in the article about how they've gotten the nod from, um, you know, the world, like from biology, because of how many quadruped animals there are in terms of stability and things like that. And uh, it's going to be interesting, though, to see if they will, you know, be able to successfully um, have these robots out there. And I'm interested in that, too, because our son has an internship this year at the uh, in the robotics lab at the Colorado School of Mines. And he's been uh, working on some projects uh, that are like mine rescue robots. So there's a ground based one that goes in and then a flying one that has LIDAR. And he's been working on the code for the communications that, that keeps them in contact. And the flying one's supposed to like just go into the cave and then basically like map the cave <laughs> and be able to come out. And so anyway, it is, it's pretty cool. And then I also have a friend, uh, who works for Amazon is pretty high up. Um, and he's doing lots of stuff with the robotic facilities, which we're getting a new one in Oklahoma City. We have a distribution center, but we're about to get one that's even larger. It's not going to be as big as, as many around the country, um, but it's going to be automated. In, and I've got a, um, a friend who, who's actually working for them as well. So anyway, thoughts on robots, Dr. Knifer? Well, I, I would say that if you've not heard of Boston Dynamics before, uh, they inspired a lot of discussion and um, kind of uh, uh, terror slash wonder when they first were announced and then picked up by Google X, the kind of startup arm of Google, um, when before it became Alphabet. And I would say that watching their evolution because the first robots were big and I mean, they were interesting because they were autonomous, but they were clunky and they were most certainly um, loud because the, um, 
the uh, uh, the dynamics and power that, that work together to make that thing propel forward required uh, small lawnmower-style engines that were extremely, extremely loud and, and obnoxious. Well, that's not what they look like in uh, 2019. And I think we, we've talked about Boston Dynamics before on the podcast, and um, the newest videos are a mix of, well, go back to my earlier words, wonder and terror, right? Because they are really interesting. They are straight out of future science fiction. And if your brain tends to wander a little bit, it wouldn't be hard to think about a robotic army that, you know, could do a lot of interesting work here, but uh, super extraordinary. And when you think about the notion of, um, you know, robotics and what it can do for us in context of, 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 you know, taking manual labor jobs away. These are an extraordinary advance forward in, in that, that whole notion, whether you're, what, what, whether you're on the side of that happening or not. The, the bottom line is, is the technology is, is, is pretty close. And I, uh, I think the last time we, we mentioned it, there was a video of what happens when uh, you know, like they're pushed down, right? Like if someone runs into them or car runs into them or uh, uh, an animal or human pushes the robot over and they're getting kind of uh, uh, agile enough that a lot of things that would be complicated even for extraordinarily um, uh, uh, physically strong humans is becoming no effort for these these robots and uh, digital pack horses and all sorts of things that they're looking at applications. And so... Um, you know, if you need any evidence of the changes to come and how a lot of things that you know, were previously done only with human labor will change, take a look at those videos. It's, search YouTube. You'll find extraordinary things. Yeah, and I've used uh, you know some of those links for curiosity links before with students. Yep. I'm, I think I'm going to be calling those wonder links this next year. Uh, but it definitely, those are the kind of short videos that can inspire some some good conversation and discussion and, and even imagination about you know where we're headed. And I, I'll predict that we're going to see robotic action uh, in some natural disasters in the next year or so, I think, yeah. because there's really been with the Fukushima nuclear incident that happened in Japan, right? When that uh, tsunami hit Japan, uh, I think that was one of the things that a lot of people were talking about, you know, being able to have robots that could move, you know, very heavy, you know, steel girders and things and, and perform functions in really toxic and dangerous environments that you just wouldn't want, you know, human beings to, to be in. And uh, so, you know, I'll just say without being very political, you know, with the, the climate change and the, and the changes we're seeing in climate worldwide, uh, we're seeing lots of extreme weather events. And so it's going to be very interesting, I think, to see the role that robots play and to take that to the classroom. You know, we need uh, we don't necessarily, I don't believe, need every student to learn how to code in Python, but we certainly need students to develop computational thinking skills, to develop familiarity with working uh, with data, uh, to improve their digital literacy skills and uh, to, to be able to think how they would, you know, utilize, you know, different kinds of technological enhancements, because I think that I've almost finished reading Noah Harari's book, uh, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. He's an Israeli historian, and this is a 2018 book that he wrote. And, you know, he and others, um, uh, Amy Webb, the futurist among them, you know, really have have believe there's consensus on the fact that we're going to be partnering and we're going to be you know, having our powers augmented by robotics, AI, computers um, as human beings. And yes, people are going to lose their jobs, but there's also going to be other kinds of jobs. We don't know what the net effect of that is going to be, but we certainly know that, you know, being able to work with these 
technologies is going to be a good thing for those of us that want to continue to be gainfully employed in the years to come. Right. Well, and we've, we've discussed this a couple times on the podcast, but it also inspires. And by the way, uh, attention K-12 students, you're going to need to have to decide this for us. Uh, Westernized generation, we, we're, we're not going to be making the decisions here. You will be making the decisions. And that's why conversations now about the future of work are very important topics for K-12 or in, in K-12 education. But, you know, that it may change societal structures. We've talked before about universal basic income on this podcast. It's a very controversial topic, although it is supported by interesting voices on both the left and the right. Um, it's also hated by interesting voices on the left and the right, right? That's both, both really. But, you know, uh, we have 300 plus million people in the United States. There's not going to be 300 plus million jobs in the future. Some economists disagree with that notion. I've talked to a couple folks that, that, that disagree, but there seems to be a growing consensus that work will look differently for almost everyone in, in the coming decades and certainly the coming century. So let's talk about what we do with that, right? And can we redirect that energy into something productive? Can we reject, redirect that energy into something fulfilling? Um, you know, work, it's not just a means of getting green rectangles. It's, it's, it's also the way we connect with other human beings. It's the way we create identity for ourselves. It's the way we create, um, uh, a value and how we, we, we interact with the world. So let's talk about the future of work. And yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you talk about a, like a wonder link or a curiosity link. Yeah. I probably would show this one too, no matter what I was teaching, uh, in, in, in K-12 education. So. All right, where should we head next? Okay, well, I want to talk a little bit about Apple because some interesting stuff has happened there. And first of all, um, I've never known what the, the true answer to this, if it's Joni Ives or it's Johnny Ives, but the design guru from Apple has announced that he is leaving the company and starting his own consulting firm. And I do want to make a caveat here because my understanding from most of the media here is that he is still going to be engaged in heavy consulting projects with Apple. So it's not like tomorrow they're going to put out um, you know, a terrible, terribly designed um, uh, 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 laptop or they're going to lose their broader design sense. Uh, so, you know, I think a lot of the hand-wringing about this has been overwrought. But at the same time, the industrial designer that really ushered in the iMac designs, the iPod designs, the iPhone designs um, – Certainly the iPad design by extension and then different generations of uh, MacBooks, you know, the, the, the first MacBooks, um, uh, the MacBook Pro, the MacBook Air were all uh, out of, of Joni Ives' shop. He also, uh, you know, was good for an interesting video at the release of new items from Apple. Uh, my favorite, of course, being the way he pronounces aluminum, aluminum, which is the British way of, of pronouncing uh, aluminum. But uh, it's interesting because I do think that I see a lot of signs of life in Apple, right? Like previous to, um, you know, uh, this year, I do think it was a four or five year kind of questionable evolution of, of whether they still had the, the wherewithal to create interesting new and forward looking products and the loss of, 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 um, their chief industrial designer, I think you could add credence to the notion that Apple can't lead in these spaces anymore, but, 
That said, uh, what's certainly in the pipeline right now seems very promising, and I, I, I think Apple's starting to get some cachet back, at least for me, kind of a wandering in the wilderness Apple user. So, Wes, it, on your vacation, did you spend any time, you know, uh, uh, lifting a pint to the former industrial designer for Apple? You know, I have actually given up pints entirely since April. So that's a, that's a <laughs> hard thing for me. Crazy. Uh, now I'm, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's very interesting uh, with this move, right? I mean, I guess he's going to stand. I mean, what are the benefits, you know, making, making more money, I guess, or, or maybe he wants the flexibility to not just, you know, be tied to Apple. It's right. uh, really, really interesting. But no, it's it's fine. I I will say though, on a on an Apple note, and then I'll segue to the laptop article we've got there. That you know we're we're going to have to make a change before April first here on the show because Google Hangouts on Air is going away. In fact, I'll I'll tweet the link that um, uh, Google provided here uh, when we just you know started the show. Just as a reminder, I'm I'm glad it's working. You know, we've had some difficulty in the, in the past few months with things being glitchy. Um, there's a solution that uh, Ben Wilkoff, a sometime fan of the, the show, had uh, tweeted me actually when I was on vacation earlier this month <clears throat> that uses an iPad and uh, does does live streaming through Google Hangouts, but it, anyway, uses an encoder and some different techniques. So it's going to be interesting to see if we've got some cross-platform ways to be able to um, you know continue the live streaming and use YouTube and, and go directly there. Uh, or if we have to do some kind of uh, proprietary thing, it'll be, I mean, hopefully we'll be able to both do it. Like, so we could swap, you know, the hosting and things like that, that, right. that we've done. So the other Apple article that you've got though, is one that I'm really happy about. <clears throat> and it's from the verge on July 17th, Apple MacBook air 2019 review, the new normal. Um, and then I, I just, I'm really glad that Apple um, has made some changes to its lineup. I don't know if we've included the link, but related to this, um, I had used for a couple of years the quote MacBook, right? So there's been three different types. There's been the light. Mine, I think, has an M7 processor, the same as the current, that vintage iPad, uh, not an Intel processor. Uh, then there's been the MacBook Air, and then there's been the MacBook Pro. And uh, actually on the MacBook Pro now, I've been enjoying the Pro a lot you know, heavier, but, you know, just great with the battery and the speed and the touch ID and and things like that. So uh, Apple has, um, you know, cut their line because it was, was, I think, too confusing. It kind of reminded of the the time when, you know, Steve Jobs came in and really just cut the craziness of so many different products and, and clarified this is our pro line, this is our consumer line, et cetera. Um, so anyway, the, um, you know, iterations of the, of the MacBook Air, um, you know, basically are, are, I mean, one of the big ones is it's USB-C only, you know, and I, I'm USB-C only right now. I've got my, my headphones in the headphone jack, which is nice. I don't want to travel with my, you know, external microphone. And whenever I do, that's a, a USB-A you know, microphone. So I got to have my, my dongle in there and I got to, you know, plug that in and, and convert and everything like that. Um, but anyway, it's, uh, this is, this affects schools, right? We've at our school decided to stay with the older MacBook Air, which is still available and it's, you know, a little bit cheaper. Um, because, you know, if you take this step, which is going to be inevitable to the USB C world, 
Right. Those are new adapters for everybody, not only for power, but also for your HDMI. Hopefully people are converting to that. We've almost converted all of our classrooms at school. We still have a few projectors to run VGA, but anyway, it's just, there's, there's logistical concerns in terms of support and, and all of that. So what are your thoughts about this MacBook Air new normal Verge article? Well, um, so two pieces that I are interesting. First, I, I would say that, um, the closest I've come to buying a MacBook in the last five years has been the MacBook, which is now, you know, now gone. So I like that super thin and light notion. I don't like super thin and light, generally speaking, because I feel like they're, they're flimsy. And I, I've actually felt like the first time you and I, I think were at ISTE podcasting, you were on your MacBook, um, and we're carrying that with you. And I like the hardware. It feels nice. It feels substantial, which is it was kind of a, a big deal for me. But I would like to get to a point where there's something thin and light that I can use um, uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm on the road. And, uh, that's particularly true of, I've been kind of working towards, um, being a, uh, a commuter, uh, a commuter in Missoula and, and taking the bus and stuff. And I don't like really hiking a laptop with me. Uh, when I do that, if I have a thin and light one that, that helps that my current, you know, uh, 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 carry laptop is a Chromebook pixel, which I like a lot. It's, it is thin in light. It's a little bigger than I'm looking for. And that's why I like the 12 inch form factor in the MacBook. But it, reading the article from The Verge with the review, they basically say that this is the MacBook Air, right? Like, it, it compromises in a lot of ways, just like the MacBook Air used to, in part because of its thin and light design, and in part because this is the, I don't really know how to term this, the more reasonably priced or maybe more value-priced offering from Apple, right? The the Pro, the MacBook Pro is a great piece of hardware. It is worth the money you pay for it, but it is a more substantial piece of hardware. It's heavier. Um, it is more expensive. The components may be more pro or industrial, however you want to state that, but that comes at a cost. And so for me, um, you know, it's, it's encouraging to, to hear that they are going to go in that direction. I do hope, like the current new, the new air form factor, which is it's not that different than the old form factor. It's close though, because it, it does, it is a little tapered, which is a MacBook Air thing. Um, but I would love it if they took this new evolved, um, uh, form factor and made it available in the old 11 inch model. Because mm-hmm. I, there, until it died from, with a, a battle with a cup of coffee, there's no laptop I loved better in my, you know, 30 years of, of, uh, using computers than the MacBook Air 11. And, um, that's why the 12 was so tempting to me is because I just, I love that Air 11. It went with me. It was my constant companion, you know, traveling and at work and at home. And when that died, I, well, I mean, <laughs> I, I was so distraught. I bought a Chromebook, right? So, um, you know, like that, that, uh, uh, I, I'd like to see them do, do more in that space. Absolutely. And, and, you know, my wish for Apple is going to, would be for sure that there's some kind of a laptop that's, that's in a, a more, you know, academically priced, uh, place, you know, yeah. between five, let's say between 500 and a and thousand. Of course, it'd be great, you know, if they could get somewhere around 500. Apple has, has had a really rich history of, of providing educational laptops. You know, I remember the, I think colored green and orange. Uh, was it the mate? Something mate? I'm going to, anyway, Scott or Peggy can help us, you know, Googling it was, it, you know, it, I don't forget the name. But anyway, just one of the first, you know, uh, design for education laptops, the white, 
um, you know, MacBook, uh, laptops. Those, those were the ones I remember we rolled out to kids in Floyd data and post Texas back in probably like 2003 with the tip program in Texas for one-to-one. And anyway, just real durable machines, reliable, uh, lasted a long time. Um, you know, return on investment. That, that's still one of the yeah. big things that you get with a Mac, uh, vis-a-vis, especially, you know, a Chrome device of, of really any type. Um, although the higher end ones, I think, are perhaps going to, you know, be challenging that. But then those are, you know, priced comparably to what the, the Mac laptops are. So Peggy mentioned in the chat room that she was, uh, hoping to get a new Mac laptop as well. And, um, uh, had some air conditioning trouble, unfortunately, there in warm Arizona. But, uh, yeah, it's, it, you know, it's, it, it is interesting how we get used to new normals in terms of speed and everything. And I would, I would say this, I had a conversation with my wife tonight. She's on a MacBook Air and been having some issues. It's like time to reimage your, your machine, you know, so whatever kind of, of machine vintage era, uh, you know, if you are continuing to use it and, uh, it's good to, you know, go side by side with some people and have other people use your computer sometimes to be like, oh my gosh, really? This is, you know, this is going so slow. Uh, cause whether you're Windows, Mac, um, probably not Chrome because it's so easy to power wash and Chrome just doesn't, you know, although there's an article I'll talk about where it is, there are some issues with some processor. It's actually a hack and a, and a malware with, with uh, ransomware or not ransomware. It's, um, crypto mining. Anyway, it's pretty rare to be getting your Chromebook bogged down. But if you've got a Mac or a PC, you definitely need to, you know, on a regular basis, be uh, wiping it and starting fresh. Yeah. Where to next? Let's see. Well, we probably should jump into some of these privacy discussions because they're uh, obviously important to the big picture. So uh, I would just start with, uh, it was Amazon Prime Prime day for two days this week. And I have to say that I managed to get out of Amazon Prime with just one purchase. And I bought some pretty, I mean, you know, nothing extravagant or anything. And I certainly never, never more than a couple hundred dollars that I wasn't probably spending on, on, on blowing on tech anyways. But, um, the, uh, someone tweeted out a link. Uh, I think it was, um, I don't remember what it was. It was some ed, ed tech, uh, a lister had, had sent that I can't believe this deal on Amazon Prime. And for all I know, they were a compensated influencer, but it was a prime stick, uh, TV stick and, uh, the little mini echo for like combined for $22 and those things together go for over a hundred bucks. And I do carry a little, uh, uh, Amazon stick with me traveling. And the one I have is the first generation from five years ago and it's been pretty slow. It's fine for traveling, but, um, I couldn't resist. In fact, I just, just set it up and plug it into my hotel television. But the reason why I want to look at this article in light of prime week is that, I mean, one of the, one of the, the grander privacy uh, questions I think we need to answer is that, you know, do we trust the mega corporations with our data or not? And, and I have to say that I still have a very um, perhaps naive belief that companies like Google and Amazon want to keep my business and they don't want to die as companies, right? And so they're not going to do something that is just 
terrible with my data. But this article caused a, quite a stir this week in that uh, Amazon has confirmed to um, uh, Ars Technica and other sources that they never delete voice data and voice recordings it takes from Alexa. And I certainly understand Amazon needing to analyze uh, uh, recordings that it takes from Alexa because you have to be able to look at uh, uh, what people are asking for to analyze it and make the technology and, and the AI better. But I don't think there's any justification at all for doing this. And my understanding from uh, the, the media on this particular issue is that unlike Google, where you can go and delete all your recordings, uh, you have some control over that. You can't delete the recordings from Alexa. You can cancel your account. My understanding is that that would at least deassociate them with you, but you can't delete or you can't delete them and they're stored forever. And that's a little problematic, I think. And, you know, I'm sure that that and I've seen some various justifications from this from from commentators, but yikes would be the way I describe that situation. Uh, so and you are it's you you are Google Home and are your Google Homes at home, right? We're all in, in with Google. In fact, oh, I would love to. Uh, actually, I, my I think my birthday present I bought, bought for myself before the camping trip was a one hundred dollar portable propane smoker, and I've been watching Ooh. numerous YouTube videos on Ooh. smoking brisket. Yeah, uh, other things we smoked chicken. Brisket, I'll be right over for dinner. Yeah, well, not yet. Uh, it was not <laughs> a, a complete success on the brisket. I mean, we, yeah, it, it was, it was edible. One of, we, anyway, we had to cut up in half barbecue sauce for the second one. Hey, we're getting better. Go. Yeah, we're all Google. Uh, what I'd love, uh, is to get the, you know, one, the one, one like it for the kitchen that has the screen. I think I actually want the facial recognition one too, because you can just walk in front of it and it'll recognize and, you know, tell you stuff and, uh, my daughters can actually deepen their voice and trick Google Home in thinking it's me, which is which is wild. Um, my related, you know, comment and question on that Alexa article with content is like, what's a best practice for how long we should allow companies to keep our data, like in terms of its utility to us? Because one of the things Google is now, you know, more forthright about doing, in addition to letting you know all the stuff that they're um, you know, keeping is it's basically like um, what's a, like a retention policy. You know, as a Google admin for our school, um, we have a setting and, and we set it for five years that that's what we keep email, you know, in, yeah. in our whole system. And so similarly, Google will now I mean, you can just flat out delete everything. But I think you can also set a, an expiration for the, the, the voice data and, and things that it's keeping for you. And it, maybe that's overall for data. Have you, have you explored some of the changes that they've made? Cause they've given, a, you know, consumers, I think some greater levers for that, haven't they? Um, I'm not as of late. Um, although I have to say that, and I show this often and uh, it's been a year or two since I've given a, a Google privacy presentation, but you know, I do like, you can go into, um, I think it's security.google.com. No, it's privacy.google.com. And you can take a look at everything it's got on you and you can just start deleting away. And I'll give you a good example of this. Um, uh, so Wes and I use YouTube as of right now to uh, broadcast, um, a recording broadcast, our podcast. And we have a channel, the EdTech SR channel that, that we, we manage. And it's a sub account that's managed by both of our personal YouTube accounts. Well, you know, on Wednesdays, if I'm hosting uh, the, the podcast, then I need to get into that sub channel and then get into the, the background to, to be able to start this process up. Well, sometimes I forget 
to put put it back on my regular channel when I go back to YouTube. And so once in a while I'll go in and notice I'm watching videos under the EdTech SR channel. I, I, I'm not watching anything weird or anything that I, that wouldn't be, you know, uh, anything worse than just a, some light ribbing from my podcast partner, but you know, that's, I don't want that stuff on there. Right. And so a couple of weeks ago, I noticed I was doing that and I went deleted by history, a watch history at YouTube. And that is awesome, right? Like the ability to go in and at fairly micro level, delete individual pieces of that history or just clear the whole thing. Same is true of, of recordings I've made using, uh, the Google Assistant. Um, the same is true of uh, uh, emails. Um, the same is true of almost uh, any part of their service. And because Google makes it very easy to pull your data out of there using their Google Takeout service, you could actually offline archive it first and then pull it off the web. Yeah, I get that that some of the data storage retention comes off as a little creepy, but Google gives you, I think, an extraordinary tool set for archiving that information and then deleting it from the cloud. If Facebook did that, if um, if Apple did that, if Microsoft did that, like, and, and Apple would, would, would probably advertise itself as maybe a little more privacy friendly, but I think there are ways you can do this to empower users to take control of their data. We just need it to be universally applied across everyone's, uh, uh, everyone's services. And I feel like that's part of the reason why I trust Google with my stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And you know, that's, that's, that's a big question. You know, who, who are we going to trust? Uh, who do we trust, right? Because right now we're, we're using apps and we're, you know, giving uh, giving our faith and trust to these companies. And there's been some folks I've heard on podcasts who've said, hey, look, you know, if you really want to be secure with your, your iPhone, don't install any third-party apps yeah. at all. You know, just use Apple's. And uh, that would certainly, you know, cripple for many of us the function that we have out of our smartphone. But, you know, it's, this is one of these things that we need to be much more aware of, and that yeah. is the permissions that we give. Uh, we need to go into our Google accounts and whatever other authentic, authentication accounts that we've used in other places. We need to deactivate the things we're not currently using. That's just that's part of spring cleaning. In fact, that'd be a good session uh, to do sort of like, yeah. you know, uh, annual session. hygiene, you know, and, and, the, and the ways in which we need to wipe our devices. We need to go in and check our security accounts, you know, make sure our two factors are are turned on, you know, that kind of stuff. Oh, that's, uh, a great, that's a great idea. I'm going to write that down because I think I'm going to propose that for NCC. Really there, nice. there you go. Good. Uh, hey, Peggy had asked about the, uh, oh, it is FaceApp. I thought it was WhatsApp. What, what about this BBC News? You want to comment okay, on that? Okay, so uh, if you if um, if you haven't been on 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 picture based social media today, uh, FaceApp, which is has been has been in the news before, but they've released an enhanced filter in their FaceApp app that essentially allows you to um, age yourself. And when it first came out, it was a little like. Uh, Silly, I guess, would be the way to describe it. Well, it, the, the the recent releases of the app are actually pretty extraordinary and do a pretty good job of taking a photo of yours and essentially aging you. And, um, you know, I, I like to think I'm immune from silly things on the Internet, but I like a good cat video myself. And I right away this morning when I saw this, and I saw several influencers and then friends 
that uh, uh, did this today, and I'm see, trying to see if I can find a, an example of the photo, but it does an extraordinarily good job of using AI to age you, in essence, in, in either direction, right? Like, it can make you younger or make you older, although I'm pretty sure that at age seven I didn't have a beard, which it tried to claim I did today on the app. The reason why this is problematic for some folks is that um, uh, this company, which is a Russian-based company, owns the, the Face app. Um, there is a... Um, uh, uh, I, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, um, uh, some suspicion that this could be a play for all sorts of things, including creating a massive database of people whose name is associated with their face, right? Like if 100 million people do this and they're logging into their Facebook account, then it's easy to create a facial ID database from that. Um, also, this company's been naughty in the past. For example, um, they had created some um, filters at, at some point that uh, uh, added, like, uh, changed ethnicity uh, and attempted to um, uh, to do things uh, related to that. And they were pretty quickly branded as racist and, and stereotypical and, you know, eliminated from the app. But be cautious because, you know, again, a lot of influencers today out there posting pictures of themselves super old or super young. And in fact, a friend of mine uh, from college posted a picture of his, of the older version of his, of his, uh, I believe his kid's a toddler and he looks just like me. So, <laughs> um, apparently, um, uh, 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 just being roommates with a guy in college is is, is enough to uh, uh, to to spread around your 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 face looks, but it's super interesting and you know it's it's an interesting piece of this process. That okay, I saw this today on Instagram. Randy Rogers had posted something. I was like, man, he is looking so old. I was like, oh, <laughs> what happened to Randy? Man, he's been having a tough time at home or something. So that must be what he did. You know, because it was multiple multiple versions. This, you know, facial recognition is some is an area that we need some re- some um, some some protection for. Yeah. Okay. Let me just say this for the record: we need some privacy protection in the United States. We need it. We don't have that, except I think in the state of California. And um, there are just crazy stories. I don't know if this was from. Noah Harari in that, that book, or if this was somewhere else, but you know, we've had, I've been doing a lot of listening about like Russian disinformation and all kinds of, you know, kind of fringe stuff. I'm not wearing the, the tinfoil hat tonight, but you know, I've been basically discreetly wearing it around for several days. Um, there was a laundry mat in California that had a camera and somehow, you know, people were able to access all of that data and there was a, a, a journal article published that Chinese researchers, you know, utilized that and it, it, it actually helped train Chinese military facial recognition AIs that have been used against the, the Uyghur uh, Muslim population in, in Western China. And, and that data, you know, when you're in that uh, laundromat or whatever, I, I mean, I don't even know what recourse you would have. I'm, it, no. I'm pretty sure that was in California where you're supposed to have privacy regulation. Now, was there privacy protection? Sorry. Was there privacy protection at that time? I mean, the, here's the, here's a, a big thought. <clears throat> we should have the opportunity to do a do-over without joining a, a witness protection program 
with our digital footprint and the the identity that we project, you know, in that's opaque for us. We can't see it, you know, in the cloud. There's all this stuff that CVS and and Walgreens and Walmart and your dog food place and all, you know, supermarket, all these these company different companies uh, are collecting this stuff. And and we once we cross the biometric threshold, there's there's no going back. You know the yeah. the uniqueness of our ret of our retina and be, and having a retina scan is I think far greater even maybe than a fingerprint, um, even face the way that you know bone structure and, and all of that. Um, it's interesting because I've gained a little weight in the last few years. So Facebook sometimes has some difficulty like identifying me. It's identified me as my dad before. Um, anyway, but you know, we don't right now have recourse to say that I own a facial recognition scan of myself. Like, yep. and so, you know, it's, this is an area that we, I think definitely need some privacy protection for, and it is um, somewhat inevitable, I think, where these technologies are going in terms of, of kind of the ubiquitous surveillance state that we're moving into. Um, but I, anyway, I'll, I would have to go back and, and find, find the podcast, but there's been some really good interviews. I think it was an interview actually with the guy who, because <clears throat> we talked about in the show a few weeks ago uh, in the Bay Area in San Francisco, I think, or maybe it was Berkeley. I think it was uh, the Bay Area of San Francisco. They they passed some kind of a law that wasn't a complete restraint on law enforcement, but it was saying that they needed to have some disclosure in the ways that surveillance technologies were being deployed by the city government. And so the individual who's really become the advocate and the champion for that was talking about how, you know, it, it's not inevitable as far as like we're all going to become, you know, Western China in terms of the ubiquitous surveillance. Uh, but currently we don't have protections about that. And, you know, just like it was with Cambridge Analytica and these little quizzes and, oh, don't you want to know if you're a Hufflepuff or a Gryffindor? Oh, you're, you're Slytherin. You know, oh gosh, you just gave away all this data that, you know, allowed, uh, you know, Russia to more directly intervene and try and disrupt our election. And we probably will never know whether <clears throat> or not that had a conclusive effect, but we certainly know that hacking was real right. and, People were just generously giving away all this information about themselves and then access to the data of their friends and all of this kind of stuff. So these kinds of fun apps are the tripwires that oftentimes, you know, lead us down a pretty dark rabbit hole of, you know, privacy violations. Yep, absolutely. Um, I had a profound thought. I lost it. Go ahead. That's okay. Uh, let's see. I want to do a shout out uh, under the technology correction heading on our uh, links to a citizen's guide to fake news. This comes to us from the Center for Information Technology and Society at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I am at this Summer Institute for Digital Literacy and Media Literacy, and, and those terms, you know, can obviously be debated in terms of what what falls under each one but you know the issue of being critical consumers as well as sharers of the news and you know fake news is nothing new right i mean read about you know the era of of pamphlets in revolutionary america and the way that you know uh, there's just a, there's a long history of of you know yellow journalism and uh, you know, even the new, the uh, book I was telling you I read by my friend Kent Brooks <clears throat> about Boston, Colorado, uh, wild, wild as they come, I think is the name of the book. 
<clears throat> you know, the newspapers there, the things they printed, the ways in which they were, you know, pre you know, presenting the railroad is just around the corner. So everyone's going to, you know, want to move to this wonderful, lush, beautiful part of southeastern Colorado where, you know, the rain may never fall. And yeah, actually, they, you know, portrayed it as a paradise. Lots of history of difficulties with journalism, with publications, with the need to discern, you know, what is authoritative, what can we believe. But this is a, a pretty good and contemporary um, summary of, uh, of fake news and, you know, why we fall for it, how to protect ourselves, fact checkers, um, you know, games that teach you about fake news, what we can do. Uh, Anyway, it's 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 informative. So it, it could even be something if you're going to have a curriculum that's going to address media literacy and talk about uh, propaganda, uh, maybe you know more generally, but then you know specifically the difficulties that we're going to continue to face in election seasons that are heating up and are just going to get more contentious. That might be a resource. What do you do, Jason, with your parents and your relatives? And those that may share things that, you know, might might fail the barometer test of uh, authoritative, accurate, and healthy information to share. Sure. Well, one thing I would say is that, very interestingly to me, is that, and part of it's because I did utilize the wonderful unfollow feature on Facebook, which allows you to stop following the post of someone without unfriending them. And I do have a handful of, 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 of friends and relatives and distance acquaintances that I'm friends with on Facebook that just don't have anything that I'm interested in politically to, to discuss. And I, I think it's a healthy part of my own digital uh, um, uh, strategies, hygiene, whatever you want to do it, to not engage with that. But for me, it's also, like, I also want people that are posting stuff that I happen to agree with broadly. If it's fake news, I want them to go away from that, right? And so part of it, Snopes is a big uh, piece for me, is that when I know something is fake and Snopes can prove it to be fake to me, sharing that with them is is a, 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 the, an article that kind of explains why it's fake is an important thing, although uh, right after the 2016 election, I did utilize that strategy and was told that Snopes was also fake news, um, which I don't believe to be true personally, but I do think that that is a broader problem here is that, you know, like I, I love this website you just shared. It's a wonderful a uh, wonderful uh, tool, I think. And I really would, like, I, I, I would love to be in the classroom for, again, for a variety of reasons, but I do think teaching a liter media literacy course or maybe teaching as, as part of a government uh, curriculum would be just extraordinarily interesting. But, um, but I do think that we do, one of the big problems that we run into when we start to chase our tails a little bit is that how do you know that the fake news guy is in itself fake news? Because all these things can be mimicked on the internet, right? I have a trust system. I have a value system that I have where I, you know, I looked at the, the bottom of the page here and, and who is creating this. And um, I have a general trust for um, uh, uh, professors at a large public university, the University of California at Santa Barbara. I'm guessing that if I started digging more directly that Professor Yang and Professor Sturm, Professor Gomez and Professor uh, Burston are all excellent uh, scholars. And I, I can verify that by using the Internet. But then that assumes that I trust, you know, 
scholarly sources, right? Or I trust tenured professors, which, you know, I happen to, I know people that don't. So I think that's the big, big challenge here is that we're going to be fighting about this for an awful long time. And unfortunately, I think our political discourse is going to be the victim of that particular fight. I think you're right. Well, we and then, and then a sad lull in the podcast. <laughs> I was just calling me to cancel the call. I'm not going to take the call. Yeah. That'd be kind of cool. Join right in. Yeah. I'm going to merge, merge the call right <laughs> here and bring you into the show, honey. So, uh, let's see. You want to hit some of the, the Google links? Yeah. Got? Yeah. Let me, let me, um, uh, let me do a couple quick Google ones. Uh, and actually you mentioned something interesting that relates to, uh, my geek of the week, but, um, Google Glass. Did, did you own Google Glass? I got to borrow Felix Giacomino's Google Glass for uh, a good while. I, I didn't actually love it, and so, I, but most people didn't. I don't think that's why yeah, we don't really yeah, have it around. Part of the problem, did, right? did you get to, to use it? I, I used I used it for a couple of days. Also, a borrowed pair, and there's a couple of great photos of me with Google Glass on, but I didn't either. But Google Glass was an experiment on Megan Reality that kind of died pretty quickly, actually. And we do know Google Glass lives on as a professional product that Google's been working with. And they, along with the HoloLens people at Microsoft, have been working on military and medical and scientific applications to it. But I saw a really great article from uh, the New York Times about how Google Glass may have an interesting afterlife as a consumer device um, as a tool for autistic children. And the idea is, is that as, you know, our AI databases get larger and more comprehensive, we might be able to provide kids a, um, a very interesting way of, um, you know, doing things like detecting emotion, which is a struggle for some kids on the spectrum, um, being able to better maintain eye contact by cues that can be fed through something like glass, I would assume that if they're going in that direction, it looks dramatically less uh, uh, weird than it did when the original Google Glass was released. But, I mean, that's part of the reason why that, you know, Google's famous for this, but failed products are never failed products if you can, uh, you know, re- uh, parlay them into something else. And I would love to see, I just, what a great application of that technology. I would love to see it if Google Glass could provide a, uh, 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 some tools for 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 uh, uh, folks that are in that particular uh, frame of mind. Well, and on a related question, Doctor Neifer, are you playing with Vigor Wizards Unite, which is the new Pokemon Go for your smartphone? Um, I have not. I did install the app last week, but, you know, I try not to play with addicting things, so um, I did not do much there. But, yeah, I've seen a lot of – well, and there's, there's a, a lot of interesting articles about that now, and, and uh, yes, uh, I have downloaded it. I'm hoping to never open the app. <laughs> I will admit that I installed it and tried it um, actually at our park on a walk kind of with our dogs uh, it, it's a little tricky. Um, and I think I had turned notifications on, so I was really getting nagged for a while, you know, trying to come, come back into it. But, uh, Leo Laporte, who is the podcast godfather of the Twit Network, I uh, heard him, you know, probably a month ago, you know, talk, talk about how excited he, he was about that. But there again, you know, I think, wasn't it, uh, Pokemon Go, or was it something else where there was a permissions issue with your Google Drive where it was like giving, you know, unlimited access to all your files? Anyway, one of those permissions things again. So I don't think it was used maliciously, but 
those things are out there. Uh, how about, um, uh, I got a Google article there from The Verge on July 11th. YouTube is launching educational playlists that won't show recommended videos. Uh, this is fantastic. Um, one of my wife's favorite websites, which I, I gotta, I'm gonna check it right now. It's called, uh, Safe YouTube. They had been saying, hey, we don't have money. We don't know whether we're gonna be able to stay alive. Um, and it looks like it's still there. Uh, she is, um, you know, using that a ton with students to share links inside, um, uh, my brain. Um, Seesaw, the, the digital learning journal portfolio the kids use sometimes on our website, in class, you know, being able to strip out ads. That, that's, a, that's a very important skill for teachers to have today in terms of sharing video content and not subjecting students to distraction um, as well as <laughs> radicalizing content. Uh, that, and there's, another, there's another article actually that we've got in there about that. But um, that's good news. I didn't really understand from the article if we would be able to create those playlists. I think it's that uh, they're going to be able to make those. Um, and so anyway, that, but that's, that's positive. Um, there's another related article, um, which let's see, well, maybe I didn't put it in here. Um, it was, well, yeah, I'll, I'll skip that. So, I'll have to scan the article a little bit more. Um, do you use playlists much? I, f I find I'm using my YouTube playlists all the time, and that's another, you know, really important literacy skill. Um, that I yeah, I mean, I, I have a watch or a watch later playlist that I use quite a bit, and then um, I also have uh, uh, I've created some playlists for the purpose of you know, like instructional ones. Like when I want to learn more about X, I'll put the videos that are worth it into there, and so I can refer back to them later. Um, it. it, it it's interesting that you mentioned the the notion of uh, you know uh, recommended other videos going away for the educational purposes because that's one of the reasons why I'm gonna re probably re recommend. I know I mentioned it quite a few times on the podcast the reply all podcast from Gimlet because they had an outstanding episode. I think it was last week's episode that talked a little bit about why YouTube has been such an important tool for um, like anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists and anti uh, uh, or 9-11 conspiracy uh, folks and has really nudged people towards more radical thoughts um, that based on what they went into there for. And the, the reason why is because, you know, YouTube was looking for ways to, to, to get people to stay on the site. Obviously that's the goal of, of all these advertising driven services. And they set a, 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 a massive goal that they fell short of. This was, uh, seven, eight years ago, and they started tweaking what was keeping people on the site. And as it turns out, you know, finding 17 other videos that basically say the same thing isn't keeping people on the site. But when you can do th something that's more fantastic or more um, hardcore or more, um, I guess for lack of a better word, putting more radical than what you're what, what you're watching, then that tends to keep you you know clicking on videos and watching through videos. Uh, I would call that like a YouTube hole, right? Well, as it turns out, that has a psychological effect in helping to radicalize your views on things. And I thought it was super interesting that it was those recommended videos that it, that a lot of people are saying has been the problem of YouTube becoming a place to share you know less than 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 legit content yeah okay huh that's weird i put it under facebook that's why i couldn't find it i thought i put it into the, the show notes i'll i'll move it down under our google 
column. Um, the article is Wired, July 13th, The Toxic Potential of YouTube's Feedback Loop. And that's really a deep dive yeah. in yeah, what yeah, we're yeah. talking about right now. So, um, gosh, YouTube is one of the most important things for us to be talking, you know, digital citizenship-wise with parents and students about. We had a session. We called it Let's Talk About YouTube uh, this past spring. And I think that, uh, you know, even at this conference, you know, finding out what, what the, you know, the channels are, what kinds of, you know, content and things like that people are watching. <clears throat> One of the things I'm on, on the lookout for, and I've, I need to test them and I'm not going to mention what they are yet, uh, but the, because the algorithms are changing, but, you know, there are different searches that you can do on the web and, and these are more, uh, not for YouTube, but like for images and just straight up Google searches that can have very different results depending upon the demographic profile that YouTube yeah. and Google has built for you. And um, anyway, I'm hopefully going to be using some of those uh, in some digital literacy and media literacy lessons with students this year. And, uh, you know, you, YouTube is, is huge in terms of the algorithm, the power that it has, um, the impact and the changes in the algorithm, you know, have to creators. We've talked about that a little bit on the show. And um, anyway, it's important stuff to, to be talking about and to be encouraging folks to be intentional about the things that they, you know, do watch and see. And I mean, at a very basic level, right? Just looking at the history going, going in with, with your child or with your students and taking a look at the YouTube, you know, history playlist. Um, one of the, the guys that's here in the dorm. We're back back in college, by the way. I apologize for the you know rather poor light that we have here, but it is what it is. The, the bandwidth is good, I guess. Um, he was saying, you know, his 12 year old uh, when he went <laughs> and looked at videos that just like you're like, no, you know, we don't need to to be looking at these. And a lot of what he had found, um, you know, ended up coming because of related videos things on the side. So, is your food? being delivered was that the it's, we hear within five minutes so our timing is impeccable there you go okay well what other articles would you like to touch on before we geek of the week it and parachute out of this functional google hangout that we're so thankful actually was working tonight i want to just mention this because if you are a parent or 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 know of parents that have fortnite uh uh interest in your home i know fortnite is starting to to scale back a little bit in 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 popularity but um fortnite there's a great article from polygon this week that that talks a little bit actually it was a couple weeks ago that talks about the notion that fortnite's been very interesting because you don't you can't really be good at fortnite unless you pay money to get extra things in Fortnite that make your your character beyond the standard character that's issued. And what's happening is because Fortnite's become such a social phenomenon amongst teens um, and, and, and 20-somethings in the United States, it also means that, you know, you, uh, in the same way that the kids can be bullied for clothing in schools, in the same way kids can be bullied for socioeconomic status in school, students are being bullied, or I'm sorry, kids are being bullied in Fortnite because they don't have fancy things on their Fortnite character. And, you know, a lot of interesting discussions about, you know, uh, Fortnite. Uh, it's been a, uh, it, a lot of people consider it to be a social network because of the social component that exists inside of Fortnite. But if you are interested in Fortnite or if you have kids or know someone with kids in Fortnite, that article is, 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 is pretty extensive. It's a, a longer read, but it's worth your time. Definitely. All right, just seeing if there's anything else we want to 
to get, uh, let's see, did you, did you do the influencers article at the New York Times? No, 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 why, no. Why don't you hit that one real quick? Yeah, so really, really great article about a word that, that I don't think we spent enough time talking about, but great article um, in, in the New York Times, this was yesterday, about the, the power of influencers in the world. And influencer is, is kind of a hazy term. It's not always clear what it means, but they're referring to people on social media. Instagram is probably the hot the hottest hotbed of influencers. YouTube is also a hotbed of influencers. But these are people that really make their living via social media by uh, uh, promoting products, by um, uh, using products. Uh, a lot of people are, are influencers that had other lives in other contexts. The one I'm thinking about right now is the former Olympic business, Sean Johnson, who has a fairly, um, um, uh, a, a fairly extensive, um, uh, uh, YouTube and, and Instagram presence, but a lot of what she's doing is, is, uh, engaged in, um, you know, peddling products through her channel. So I would definitely encourage you to do that. Outstanding. Hey, I want to give a shout out uh, to our chat room. In addition to Peggy and Scott, Con McQuinn has joined us tonight. So fantastic. We appreciate everybody who has been uh, joining us in the chat room. And we do want to encourage everyone, if you can, join us live to definitely pull that up. Um, again, we're hopeful that we're going to find a way for Google Hangouts to continue to work for us and to have that live chat feature preserved. But that remains to be seen. We're going to possibly next week be uh, trying the new technique that Ben Wilkoff had suggested, but apparently we, yeah, we better get going quick because August 1st is when this sucker, you know, stops working. So let's geek of the week it. You've already previewed it, Jason. Why, why is Reply All worth our attention? Um, Reply All is an extraordinary podcast um, by the Gimlet uh, Media Group. It was their second podcast, their first formal one after the startup podcast that kind of chronicled the startup of Gimlet. But every time I listen to it, and sometimes I fall away from it and come back to it and catch up on episodes, they just have a really interesting a scientific mind about approaching the extraordinary issues that are, are, are brought up by technology in our world. And I mentioned it was last week or two weeks ago's episode that I listened to uh, recently talked a little bit about, you know, why YouTube has become so problematic at, you know, stoking the fires of things like the anti-vaxxer movement. And um, I'd strongly recommend you listen to it. It's, it's, it's serious, but also lighthearted and in a really, really wonderful uh, podcast to kind of give you some uh, 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 things to think about in regards to the internet. If you listen to the prophet, that, that episode about the Mexico city. Yeah. That's one that. Yeah. Really, really, really well done journalism. They may also blow your mind and uh, cause you to, you know, change the ways in which you look at the world. Yeah, true. So, all right. Well, my Geeks of the Week are video annotation tools. Uh, Renee Hobbs, who is with the Media Education Lab, and she's here at the University of Rhode Island, did a great workshop. Uh, yeah, I think it was yesterday. And it was about these kinds of tools. So Video Ant is a free tool out of the University of Minnesota. It's just ant, A-N-T dot U-M-N dot E-D-U. You can log right in with your Google account or if you want to, your Facebook account. Um, there's another one that's free called Vialogs. Uh, that's V-I-A-L-O-G-U-E-S. And both of these allow you to provide annotation feedback for students uh, or for anyone for, you know, videos. 
And I just, I love it. I, I have a secret desire in the class that I'm going to be, te- classes I'm going to teach this year to like tell kids, like everything you're turning into me this semester is going to be in video because video is the pencil of the 21st century. Uh, I don't think I'm going to pull that off, but what I am going to be doing is having students turn in video and then using annotation to provide feedback. In the case of the vlogs, um, students can also reply, and so you can have a threaded discussion right alongside the video um, and, and do that either synchronously as you're playing a video in class, or you can be doing that asynchronously as feedback. Um, just really powerful, and I think definitely more helpful in terms of thinking about um, you know, a back channel, because back channels can be pretty chaotic. I have enjoyed those sometimes with, you know, live presentations. I've used those with students sometimes, you know, when we are watching a video. Um, but these kind of tools, you know, time and they timestamp the comments. And so you can be really specific on that, you know, particular point that you want to make and that kind of feedback. So I think the food is going to be here for Jason soon. Uh, Jason, where can people find you when you are not here uh, or in a hotel room somewhere, but joining us in the EdTech Situation Room? Sure. Um, uh, Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach, uh, Northwest Council for Computer Education, Tech Savvy Teacher, blog, blog, ncc.org. I'd like to remind everyone that August 1st is the deadline to submit proposals for the NCC conference. And check me out on Twitter this week. I'll be at the Mountain Moot at Carroll College in Helena, Montana, hanging out with some wonderful professionals talking about the Moodles. What about you, Wes? And I am W. Fryer on Twitter. I have been really burning up the, uh, the, the tweets here this week from the conference. Uh, speedofcreativity.org is my blog. I've actually posted a couple times since vacation, and I'm definitely going to be doing a lot more writing. One of my goals for this year is actually to do more long-form reading as well as writing. And I've really been reflecting on how social media like Twitter, you know, not only encourages arguably, you know, some shallow reading and and skimming of articles versus deep uh, skimming, but perhaps even shallow thinking. And I think that, you know, writing blog posts, reading blog posts and uh, engaging in that different kind of interaction, uh, you know, has some benefits. I'm continuing to listen to the book Deep Work that's giving me some thought about that. So we want to encourage you to join us again. We will be back here next Wednesday, all things working, hopefully, perhaps for one more Google Hangout on air, or perhaps to try out our new method, uh, which I think will be advisable. So I'll try to do a little research on that. And uh, definitely check out our links, edtechsr.com slash links. Follow us on Twitter at edtechsr, and definitely reach out to Jason or I. We want to thank everybody in the chat room. Wish everybody a great week and encourage you to stay savvy and stay safe. Have a great week. Good night.